0: you know, yeah, pandas are important, you know, we need to support pandas and tigers, and then you realize, you know, but there are so many other organisms that are imperiled that we know nothing about.
1: This is A New Angle, and I'm your host, Justin Angle, marketing professor at the University of Montana. This podcast is my chance to speak with cool people doing awesome things in and around the great state of Montana. We are proudly underwritten by First Security Bank and Blackfoot Communications. Okay, today's guest is Emily Grassley, 2011 graduate of the University of Montana with a degree in studio art. Emily is the creator and host of the hugely successful YouTube channel, The Brain Scoop. She's also the chief curiosity correspondent at Chicago's Field Museum. Emily is dynamic, engaging, creative, and not afraid to speak truth to power. It's been amazing to follow her success and I was so stoked to get some time with her during her recent visit to campus. We cover some ground in this conversation, and I'm excited to bring it to you right now. Okay, so we're here today with Emily Grassley. Emily, thanks for coming on the podcast.
0: Hi, thanks for having me.
1: So you are back here in Missoula Yep, to be the honoree of our Odyssey of the Stars event this weekend. It's
0: pretty exciting.
1: It's got to be pretty surreal to come back to your alma mater and be an honoree.
0: It is. I mean, you yeah. just
1: graduated 2011, and you're already like a superhero in our alumni sphere.
0: It's kind of weird yeah (laughs) how's it feel it feels a little weird it feels it is it is really surreal i had an interesting experience as an undergraduate here at um i never you know especially wanted to leave um missoula and uh It's, it's really, it's always nice to come back and visit. Um, every time I come back, it's in another, it's a sort of like a different capacity every time almost. And so it's, uh, it's just been really interesting and that it's happened in sort, such a short amount of time is kind of overwhelming.
1: Yeah. And so you're living in Chicago now, chief Mm -hmm. curiosity correspondent at the Field Museum Yep. and, uh, trading winter for winter coming from Chicago over to Missoula. And we're having a particularly, uh. Chili snap right now. I think it's about negative two outside. Wow, windy and, <laughs> and, and all that. Um, but it's great to have you here. Thank you. And I want to talk about a lot of things, but what I'd most like to talk about is you know you've told me that the job you have is sort of one of its one of a kind. Mm-hmm. You know, you're sort of the only person with the job that you have and. First of all, I'd love to just explain that job and and the series of events that sort of came about uh, you being able to create it for yourself in many ways.
0: Yeah, so uh, as an undergraduate here at the university, I had uh, the opportunity to do an unpaid internship in the Campus Zoological Museum, the Philip L. Wright Zoological Museum, and... You know, long story short, I fell in love with the research collection and uh, never really left. You know, I, yeah. I after graduating in 2011, I continued on in a volunteer capacity. And um, by sort of the fall slash winter 2012, I uh, had hooked up with Hank Green, who's a you know entrepreneur and videographer uh-huh. here in Missoula. And um, I, for the last year and a half, had just been, you know, enthusiastically Banging the drum for this collection and and just talking about or trying to talk about the many potential interdisciplinary uses for this vertebrate collection. Not only for wildlife biology students, but for art majors, for educators, for sure. people interested in, you know, forestry and the environment and climate change and ecology and, you know, all of these various disciplines. And, uh, and so meeting Hank, he, he helped me create a, a larger platform to reach a greater audience with these ideas. Um, so we launched the, uh, our educational YouTube channel, The Brain Scoop, Brain Scoop right. in January 2013. And a few short months later, the Field Museum in Chicago had seen it. And the president was really interested in the potential to take that channel, which reached, you know, within a couple of months, we had over 100,000 subscribers. Wow. And, yeah. From That's a, amazing. Yeah. from a, It was really surreal. And it happened really fast. I, I feel like ever since we've la- launched the channel, which was six years ago, it's just been a nonstop, like on a, on a rocket. Yeah. <laughs> so, but I but I um, I was offered a job to to bring this channel and my enthusiasm for dead stuff and <laughs> their their <laughs> importance um, to the Field Museum in Chicago, and and uh, you know, I, I it was a it was an offer that was too good to refuse, and it was honestly a dream.
1: So they provide sort of production support for the show and allow you to sort of film and create content at the Field Museum and, mm-hmm. and leverage their sort of scope of, of of resources as well.
0: Yeah, and so when I was volunteering at the at the museum here, we had very limited expertise. Uh, okay. Uh, there was one, and I shouldn't say that because obviously there's the all of the fantastic professors in wildlife bio and and, mm-hmm. and the other division of biological sciences. But in terms of people who are actively using the collections uh, for research, that was you know. Uh, a little limited when you compare it to a collection like the Field Museum. Right. So the Phil Wright Museum has around twenty-four thousand specimens, and the Field Museum has around forty million, and wow. around you know twenty-one active curators, and you know dozens and dozens of collection staff, and mm-hmm. just a, a a much wider scope of zoological and geological anthropological materials. And so yeah, the Field Museum. Um, provides access to to collaboratively work with uh, all of these research scientists to make videos that exemplify the kind of research and collections work that happens at, at natural history museums.
1: So let's go back for a second to your experience at the Wright Museum mm-hmm. as an unpaid volunteer intern. Um, you know, I remember from, and I don't know if it was your first time appearing on, on Hank Green's program... But at the end of that episode, he highlighted how an institution like the Wright Museum couldn't do what it does if it weren't for people like you working Mm -hmm. in an unpaid role, uh, which is in many ways a big problem. For a museum like that, oh, like huge. not everybody has the resources that the Field Museum has, yet the Wright Museum provides an important service to the University of Montana. Can you talk a little bit about that that tension there in your experience?
0: Yeah, so, you know, to begin with, I should say, like, I, I am really privileged to have had the financial... Flexibility, my senior year to take an unpaid internship. I mean, right. I got three course credits for it, so it wasn't sure. You know, counted for something. Yeah, it counted although, for something. Although you
1: probably had to pay for those course credits, right? Yeah, so I had to pay <laughs> for the
0: course credits, but you know, I it was through the support of Marianne Bonjourni, my drawing teacher, who advised this uh, internship, and and Dave Dyer, the curator at the time at the museum. Um, you know, they really opened up the collection, and uh, and it, you, after I graduated. You know, I'm sure there are listeners out there who are like, well, what did she expect she was going to do with a degree in painting, right? Sort of the dismissive attitude toward um, studio artists in general. But the reality was, you know, I I spent three years working at the UC market. uh, And then when I graduated, you lost that job because it's for students. Work study type of thing. Yeah. And uh, so I picked up some hours at the bookstore Mm -hmm. and, you know... No offense to the bookstore, but it wasn't the intellectually stimulating place that I was I was looking for. that's well, not so, why you went
1: to college. Yeah, exactly.
0: Right? So I, I, I continued to volunteer in the museum because the museum needed it. I mean, this is an invaluable collection. It's it's the repository for zoological specimens, vertebrate specimens for the entire state of Montana and represents the largest collection of northern Rocky Mountain wildlife in the world, right? There's not another place that has a better grizzly bear skeletal collection. hmm and at the time, there was one curator who had been there for about 20 years, but he was only part-time. So he split his time between the the Zoological Museum so and So one Herbarium. full-time
1: employee at that point. One part-time. Part-time, sorry. Yeah, yeah one yeah.
0: part-time employee. And so through this internship, I've not only created a portfolio of artwork about the collection, but I begin to learn about the importance of this collection and its historic significance and the scientific significance of it. And... I just saw all the work that needed to be done. I mean, you can't just have a zoological collection and just shut the door on it for 20 years. You know, there's active yeah. work that has to be done to care for the specimens, mm-hmm. even though they're dead, right? You're still mitigating pest damage. You're still sure. providing access to researchers. And there just, wasn't enough capacity to, to do that. And, um, Over the years, you know, the the collection had shrunk more and more to occupy a smaller and smaller footprint within the Division of Biological Sciences, and I saw, you know, a real potential for interdisciplinary use in that space, and so I just committed myself to doing, to carrying out what I thought just needed to be done, and did so in a volunteer capacity.
1: Yeah, I mean, committing yourself to doing what needed to be done at a giant institution— with budget problems, and in a role of you know just a, a recent graduate, not to diminish that, but like you're up against, you know, institutional structures and stodgy faculty members, and you, you know what I mean. Like, oh, actually, you absolutely probably, yeah, I, I, abso- I
0: absolutely went through You've all these it. hurdles. You know, there were there were time we. The, the, one of the biggest problems with that collection was that it had a, a collection of about 3,000 specimens that were stored in alcohol in jars that okay. had been moved out of uh, their collection space at the the end of the hallway on the second floor of Health Sciences and had been put into uh, storage in the basement of Schreiber Gym, which I don't know if a lot of people are familiar with the basement of Schreiber Gym. Yeah. Tell us about that. That <laughs> it's, sounds
1: scary in uh, and of itself.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's it's... It's where you go to access the tunnels underneath the university, right? You know, there's electrical panels and hydraulic equipment down not there. Not where you want
1: to put sensitive specimen.
0: No, not at all. And and um, so this was, uh, you know, I'm sure the fire department had warned the university against this <laughs> violating fire code, but uh, there was a, an accident at one point where uh, there was some sort of leak in that space. And when the walls are cement and the specimens are stored in cardboard boxes, the cement Uh, or the the cardboard boxes weakened and the entire collection collapsed in on of itself and the fire department called dave the part-time curator at the time at 10 o'clock at night you know on a monday Mm -hmm. who called me to say like they're gonna throw this material out you know could you possibly come down and help clean it up sure and so you know like what are you gonna do you're cleaning up you can't say no no i mean these are specimens that are 50, 60, 70 years old that, that are the only collections of, from Flathead Lake from that time. So, yeah, I mean, the, there, were, there was a lot of frustration that literally if I'm not here helping to clean this mess up, like who else is going to do it? This is, this is I, was, I was being a, you know, sort of a martyr or a steward for the, for the state of Montana. Um, but it was, it was really frustrating. I don't know. <laughs> yeah,
1: I mean, that that's interesting. There are parallels to the business world. I mean, we have so many students that, you know, go into unpaid internships, whether it's in the summer. And some of them are for credit, some are not. Um, and, and more and more students are expected to spend time after graduation as interns, unpaid. Yeah. Basically kind of doing the job of, of paid employees. There's all kinds of problems with that. Yet at the same time, I hear lots of stories, some on the podcast, some just from folks I know of, of them sort of making something out of nothing. So now you have a great job in many ways, Mm -hmm. and we can talk about that, but this, this notion of sort of putting yourself out there and doing what needs to be done doesn't always have a payoff. Sometimes it does, and, and. Yeah. yeah, it just makes me be thoughtful about what we expect of of, of young people in the economy these days.
0: I guess the, the real problem with it is that, you know, just acknowledging, again, the privilege that I had that I could spend yeah. the time to do this. Um, I did work after graduation. I got a, a job at Hunter Bay eventually and, you know, was able to split my time into two shifts at work in the morning and then in, in, back in the evening, and so I had time during the, the middle of the day that I could come to campus and work at the Zoological Museum. Yeah. But I was working from 6 a.m. until 10 p.m., six oh. or seven days a week. Yeah. I mean, it was – I was losing my mind a little bit. Mm-hmm. But, I, you know, in times of crisis, uh, I was able to rely on my family to – you know, helped me through a couple of months. I was able to sell my senior thesis painting from my BFA uh-huh. um, for enough money to pay my rent for three or four months. So, you know, I had a little bit of, of wiggle room. But, you know, it was, I think the real unfortunate part of that is, you know, most people will not have right. that luxury. Right. And that's really where you are limiting opportunities for others. And, you know, nobody should have to expect to spend 12 or 14 hours a day in order to get the experience, you know, needed to eventually get a job in their field.
1: Yeah, particularly if those hours are unpaid. Yeah. And you can't afford to do it. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah.
0: I mean, there was a reason I worked in food service, right? Because you could get free sandwiches or, you know, if you work at the market, you could... You know, eat the write-offs from someone dropping a croissant on the floor. I mean, <laughs> like I remember many days having a dollar seventy-five and knowing exactly what I could buy. Yeah, because that's you know, broke.
1: Right, life's pretty simple at that stage in mm-hmm. some ways. Yeah, for better for worse. So let's. I mean, at what stage did you start doing your educational science videos? Was it after Hank approached you about launching Brain Scoop, or were you doing it before and, and that's how you got on on? hank's radar screen or what was the process there
0: so i started a photo blog about the collection in uh the fall of 2011 i want to say um essentially just like documenting what i was doing in the collection and trying to raise greater awareness about the need to support natural history museums but also the sort of like cool stuff that we were doing right? right you know i got to go pick up roadkill bighorn sheep from montana fish and wildlife and these are specimens that are being um used in studies to look at contagious pneumonia between wild and domestic populations of sheep in Montana. Like, that to me was really that's important fascinating. Stuff, yeah. Yeah. So I wanted to share that. And um, it was sort of like through that photo blog, I, I began to get wider attention for the museum. And sometime during that time, I, I was really looking for other ways to justify the amount of unpaid time I was spending in the collection. And that's when I came across the uh Johns Hopkins Master of Art and Museum Studies program which is primarily online it's a distance learning program okay so i applied to the program and i got in and that allowed me to you know uh tap into some student financial aid again sure. yep <laughs> and uh that was that was i enrolled in July, or the fall of 2012 and a couple months later is when i met Hank who approached me about making the this the channel so That was going to be sort of my, you know, my thesis, my research was what can we do with museum outreach? Sure. Looking at this small regional collection in Montana and using a a digital and potentially international platform uh, to gain recognition and, and support for it.
1: A New Angle is underwritten by First Security Bank and Blackfoot Communications, two cool companies doing awesome things all over Montana.
0: I'm Maureen Dowd of the New York Times, and you're listening to A New Angle. And so um, I did two semesters of that master's program before I got the offer to start at the Field Museum. Okay. And then I, I never finished. It's <laughs> <That's> okay. <laughs> yeah.
1: Yeah. And so now you're with the Field Museum, and I don't know much about the museum world, but the kind of impression I have is it's not necessarily the most progressive space as far as innovation goes. It it
0: can have that reputation.
1: Yes, yet here's an institution like the Field Museum making a big investment in a a young, talented person who's creating science education in a new medium. Tell us about kind of how that came to life and why you're excited about it.
0: Well, you know, museums... In general, uh, I think sort of share this this familiar sentiment that, th- you know, the public, big quotes around it, like the public doesn't care about us. The public doesn't right. know what we do. Right. You know, the public has an impression of who we are. And, you know, a lot of that is um, sort of, sometimes just a, a, an emotive response. You know, the reality is American Alliance Museums publishes these amazing statistics every year that, you know, museums reach tens of millions of people. Like, more people visit museums and cultural centers every year than, every, than attend every major sporting event in the U.S. combined. Wow. It's amazing. Museums matter to people. Yeah. Um, museums are some of the most trusted organizations on our planet. Um But even so, you know, there is still a pressure from the people who fund museums, whether it's taxpayers or like the field museums, a private institution. So we have a board of trustees. Uh, Everyone wants to know, like, what you're doing to reach people. Mm -hmm. And... The Field Museum was really, uh, you know, took an innovative approach to this by seeing an opportunity where someone else had already created a digital medium and cultivated an audience and a following around this topic. Of so, yeah, I mean, museums. how
1: large was your audience at this point for Brain Scoop?
0: Around 130,000 people. Okay,
1: yeah, so quite a footprint.
0: Yeah, you know, it, it was reaching people. Um, and so they thought, you know, well... This could be a great experiment. You know, clearly there's something to this person, me, uh, that gets people excited about science and we need to get people excited about science. Mm-hmm. And we had a new president at the time, uh, Richard Riviere, who was really invested in outreach. And so um, they brought me on sort of as an experiment, like, let's see what's going to happen.
1: How do you fit into the org chart at the Film <laughs> Museum? Like, how is it structured?
0: I, I bounced around a lot, you know, yeah. because the access that I received here at UM to the collections was just unprecedented. Sure. You know, I had the passcode and— You're
1: probably the only one down there doing it.
0: Yeah, you know, Dave, the the curator at the time, was just really happy to facilitate my interests. And so he's like, just go for it, you know. Yeah. Self, self-directed learning is some of the best ways to learn— so he was in full support of that. And uh, so when I started at the Field Museum, I was a little bit surprised to find myself in the communications department instead of working directly with collections. And I, and I understand that uh, impetus, right? I mean, I'm sure. doing communications. I'm tech, you know marketing to some degree. But it, it didn't take us very long to realize, you know, when you look at the analytics of Brain Scoop. Viewers, forty-five percent mm-hmm. of our audience lives outside of the United States.
1: Forty-five percent.
0: Forty-five percent. Wow. Yeah. So why wow. why put me into a department that is already spending the vast majority of their their resources and staff time on marketing and communicating toward the Chicago area and the Midwest region? Yeah, you know? misplaced. Yeah, it just it didn't make a whole lot of sense. And, and the you know once we realized that it was like oh well we can we can use this to you know to free brain scoop up to talk about the things that aren't necessarily going to drive attendance or drive foot traffic because Mm -hmm. maybe that's not what we need if what we want is international brand recognition well here you've got an international platform right here here we go and uh and so from there uh the other thing that i that i brought up eventually was you know i really need to get to know these scientists because as a non-scientist i totally understand the uh hesitation that some academics have toward putting the onus on communicating their complex research, you know, their baby, the thing that they've devoted 30, you know, years of their life to studying in and out and putting the responsibility of communicating the importance of that to somebody who's studied landscape painting. Yeah. What's
1: that? (laughs) I mean, what's your dynamic with I mean, are they called faculty at the museum? Yeah, cur-
0: curatorial staff, collections researchers. Okay, you know, I at the and I You're, am... I'm thinking
1: of like the episode of Friends where like Ross is hanging out in his white coat with mm. all the other paleontologists, and they have the blue coat people in the lunch. You know, the episode I'm talking Mm-mm. about. boy, I'm, I'm, I'm really dating myself as an old person. <laughs> no, yeah, it was, it was very hierarchical. Like yeah. the character worked in a museum, and you had the people that were scientists and the people that were the. The people that did other stuff, and yeah. very strong sort of power distance between those groups.
0: Well, you know, I, I and I think historically that's how it's worked in right. in museums. But um, scientists are smart people; they know that you know science literacy in the United States is sort of uh, in dire straits. Right. We we need to work with what we have, and we need to we need to invest in the things that are working. Whether or not they would be things that we would have the intuition to trust in to begin with. Mm-hmm. And so when I started at the museum, like, I am the first to admit I know nothing. I know nothing. You know, I I am a a baby in this giant universe of ever-evolving information. I am I am humbled by more by what I don't know than what I do know. And um, so I, I, I kind of approach it with this open honesty of, listen, I might not know what it is that you do but i'm eager to learn and i more important than that i want to know what your communications goals are for Mm -hmm. this so you've devoted significant amount of time of your life and energy on understanding this group of organisms or this environment help me understand what motivates you as a scientist And and the more that you can have these open and frank conversations the more that you can really begin to trust one another. And the way that I approach ep- every episode of The Brain Scoop is one of collaboration, right? You know, I I um, have been able to tap into narrative approaches to videos that that seem to work, right? I guess you could call me an expert in science communication mm-hmm. in some regards, but you're also an expert. So let's, you know, treat this like a collaboration rather as a service from one to another. Sure, And uh, that's when we make the best videos.
1: Well, and that spirit comes through. In all the videos that I've seen of the Thank Brain you. Scoop, I mean, you're, you're you're celebrating the work of the people and, and the science itself, but it, but it seems like um, your sort of genuine zest for their work and helping the world understand why it's important really yeah. comes through.
0: Because often they've been so uncelebrated. Yeah, I mean, that's an yeah. amazing thing about working in a big museum like the Field is. You know, yeah, pandas are important. You know, we need to support pandas and tigers. And then you realize, you know, but there are so many other organisms that are imperiled that Mm -hmm. we know nothing about. You know, there are X number of ornithologists for every species of bird. But how many people are studying, you know all of the 12 worm phyla that exist. And and when you start to talk to these scientists and understand, you know, sort of where there are imbalances in our own understanding of taxonomy and or species globally, it's right. like, you know, you can really learn to champion for some pretty uncharismatic organisms.
1: Well, you learn why they're important. Yeah. Right, yeah. the bigger picture.
0: Yeah. And, and uh, you learn, you know, again, like you learn far more. You learn that you know far less than than you do know.
1: Yeah. So I want to transition to kind of an entry point I had with your work. I mean, we celebrated, uh, my touch point of entering, just being aware of your work was, um, last fall. There was a, C- I think it was CBS news mm-hmm. kind of did a the morning yeah. show, did a profile of your work yeah. and, um, we showed that at a campus event and it was just really kind of neat mm-hmm. to, to learn about the stuff you're doing. And one of the themes of that CBS profile, um, was drawn from a video on your show on on your your channel called "Where My Lady's At," mm-hmm. and it 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 really got into kind of unpacking some of the unfortunate comments that you get on your YouTube channel and just this kind of uh, I don't know if cesspool is the right word, but yeah. like all these weird, awful, kind of double standards that exist. Yeah, the with, things with, that
0: you would you would say. Uh, Given the luxury of anonymity behind a screen,
1: there's that, and then there's <laughs> yeah. You know, so there's just sort of generally that, like comment threads on various internet places, right? But also this kind of double standard with gender and sure. science communication or any form of, of media construction, and and the standards you're held to are, are different than if 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 a man were doing the job that you're doing, yeah. What's that experience been like since or what was what 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 motivated you to, to put that content on the brain scoop and, um, and kind of put yourself out there on the issue?
0: Yeah, um, you know, for better or worse, YouTube is a um, platform that, you know, is drawn toward authenticity and uh, i've been told that i am what somebody called a uh, an emotionally transparent person okay you know i have a really hard time masking my true feelings about something uh-huh. i i'm pretty easy to read yeah. from across a room you know you know when i'm uncomfortable when i'm excited and that's what makes the brain scoop works but when i started creating you know videos i don't know that i was fully prepared to deal with the number of uh negative or distracting comments that people were leaving and to some extent you can kind of internalize that and just bury it you know you see the comments and and you can delete them or block them or whatever but um eventually i started to to receive messages from young people who would say stuff like you know i i want to make my own science channel i love what you're doing or i want to make a video about music or the Hmm. arts or or ceramics yeah whatever you're inspiring people to create. and they said but you know I'm gay or I'm black or I'm a oh. young woman and and I'm how do you deal with all those comments because you realize like you're not the only one reading this stuff your your viewers are reading it right. if someone's going to scroll yeah. down and leave a comment on your video they might check to see if that comments already been written and uh, that's unlikely yeah. <laughs> you think they're actually gonna the, check
1: somebody else wrote my awful idea?
0: I mean but it's usually but not, I get your point, you know, yeah. not the awful ideas. That these are the people who are who want to genuinely like contribute to right. what it is that I was talking about in the video. And then they're like, Oh, nobody's talking about what she's talking about in the video. They're just talking about like, oh, she, her, you know, nose looks like a pig or she looks fat or meh, her hair is stupid, or she didn't do her makeup. You know, it's just right. all these right. uh, this is all meaningless. Everybody's going to die. Like, <laughs> like, don't focus. Like, why does it matter? But uh, so I, I realized, like, you know, I need to address this not only for myself, but for these people who, who want an answer to these questions. And also just to, you know, being a, I guess, for lack of better words, a public person is a hard thing to navigate emotionally, especially as a young person and especially as someone who never did well in science, right? You know, mm-hmm. Everything is just a giant experiment. And, uh, so we made this video addressing the negativity of those comments and suggesting that it could be, uh, that vitriolic environments and, and these, um, these spaces are not, uh, are why we don't have more diversity or why we don't have, uh, a greater, um, uh, I guess representation of diverse voices in in these fields, not only online, but within science fields in general, um, these comments and these attitudes have existed long before YouTube. But, you know, I was really surprised by the reaction to that video. Um, I didn't think people would take it seriously. I sort of thought that they would just be dismissive of, you know, my, quote, complaints. Um, sure. But people took it really seriously, and it resonated with a lot of people. And it let me, you know, feel secure in this idea that you know, this is a big topic that needs to be discussed.
1: Mm-hmm. And how— how was it received by the Field Museum? What was their...
0: I mean, the Field I, I, Museum has been, for a creative person, like a fantastic playground. Yeah. You know, they, they, they sort of brought me on after the videos that I created, you know, at the University of Montana were not, I guess, safe videos, for lack of better words. Mm-hmm. Like one of the first things we did was pick up a wolf and do a completely uncensored um, dissection uh, of this animal on camera. Uh, one of the other the second video we ever uploaded to our channel was criticizing the university about its mismanagement of the fish collection okay you know so by the time the field museum offered me a job i had set a precedent like i'm unafraid yeah you're edgy con- yeah to confront some of these uh issues i i'm not very uh polite <laughs> when i feel like i mean i'm polite but i'm not afraid to to hold people accountable when i uh-huh. think they need to be held accountable so My boss at the time, I said, you know what, I'm really struggling as an employee. I don't know who I can talk to about this, but I think it's a conversation that's beyond just the walls of our institution or beyond the confines of an HR office. Mm -hmm. I, I think these are issues that are impacting scientists globally. And the Field Museum has a women in science group that has a mission statement to support inclusivity. And I said, I think this fits within the mission of that organization, that group. And so they were supportive.
1: Yeah. And it reminds me of, so we served, we, well, I moderated, you actually participated in the panel discussion Mm -hmm. yesterday. And one of the themes that came up, and I thought you spoke so brilliantly on it, was issues like this, where there are asymmetries, they have grave implications for what knowledge gets passed on. Mm -hmm. So groups that are privileged tend to make decisions about what information gets preserved and is deemed worthy of passing on. And and now you work in, in education, you work in a museum, and you, you, you have a say in, in what knowledge gets celebrated and passed on. And how do you sort of view um, not only gender diversity, but also diversity amongst cultures and, and all other forms in terms of celebrating knowledge that uh, you deem sort of worthy of celebrating?
0: Yeah. You know, that's a hard thing to navigate when you work in, in an institution that, you, yeah. you know, like many colonial and western institutions has things in their past that they're not proud of but Mm -hmm. that need to be confronted and I'll also be the first to admit that like you know I grew up in South Dakota I I received a very biased education Yep. Um, and you know every day I learn every day I'm learning right every day I'm trying to to do better and be better, but, you know, it, it, sometimes change is, is incremental. But on our channel, we're pretty cognizant about the people who we interview. You know, we want there to be uh, diversity of, of people, not only, you know, their genders and their races and understanding that, you know, my institution is fairly white um, when it comes to, like, the curatorial staff. Yeah. But, you know, we do what we can, and I think more importantly, we acknowledge that we can always do better. Um but we also like to celebrate, you know, people at various levels of their education and professionalism. I think there's something to be said about the wisdom and the knowledge that comes from, you know, a private landowner who has had an a- amateur, for lack of a better word, interest in like paleontology for 40 years versus someone who has a PhD mm-hmm. and spent six years researching it. You know, I so I think it's just... Um, and maybe that comes from my perspective as someone who studied art and is now uh, a science communicator, just really wanting to democratize. Like who we're who we listening to and who we're who we giving a voice to.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's it's you told a story yesterday about this devil's corkscrew mm-hmm. and and how you know basically a group of white men were so just myopic.
0: About well, yeah. So so that was so. For anybody listening, I, I strongly suggest you pick up this book um, by Adrian Mayer. It's called uh, "Fossil Legends of the First Americans," and it was pretty amazing for to read it. Um, she, this author, went around for years uh, collecting oral histories of um, uh, tribal members from all around the country. And recording, you know, their myths and legends about how they interpreted fossil material that they would come across. For you know, you know, people have been living in North America for tens of thousands of years. Right. So, uh, back in the late nine or the late eighteen hundreds, uh, paleontologists went to northwestern Nebraska and started talking to these landowners, these new um, settlers who were excavating these fossil spirals. Some of them are, you know, five to six feet long. They're really big. They okay. were, and uh, as I mentioned yesterday, when white people don't understand something, they call it the devil, you know, right, like right. A devil's tower or a devil's <laughs> lake or devil's corkscrew. So they were they were talking about these devil's corkscrews, and, and nobody really knew what they were. That's what they said. Nobody knew what they were. Nobody. And Adrienne Mayer recounts in her book, like, the the native communities who had lived in that area were like no those are those are the burrows from ancient land beavers and the white people were like what no like we have no idea what they are and the native people were like no they're seriously like like they're a little smaller they don't you know they don't have the tail or the paddle but you crack one of these burrows open you can find skeletal remains of ancient land beavers mm-hmm. and then you know after a while these these Paleontologists published these amazing finds and discoveries. Sure. Like these are land beavers. We had no idea, and so that's just one example uh, and something that kind of like blew my mind recently. Because, you know, you're right. When you look at it from that perspective, uh, paleontology as a field of science is fairly young. When you compare it to, you know, people must have been interacting with fossil materials for tens of thousands of years. Like, you would it, think, yeah, yeah. You know they had they had their own interpretations and their own histories and ideas and origin stories and a lot of times with new scientific knowledge they would incorporate incorporate that into their um to their myths and legends as well
1: so you've been at the field museum what now six seven years yeah it's
0: like uh, yeah five and a half years
1: and brain scoop is hugely successful what is it like half a million subscribers or yeah what's what's next i mean do you even have time to think about what's next for you
0: <laughs> well the the what's next is funny because uh i've been working on what's next for the last year and a half okay um it, it's a it's a it's a project that is something i would have never dreamed i would have um the opportunity to pursue and i can't share too many details about it but what that, i can't that's
1: got to mean it's really awesome
0: I mean, it, it means that the contracts are really long. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so the contracts take a while to negotiate. Um, but essentially, it's a it's a it's a media project. So Brain Scoop videos are you know between five and ten minutes, sometimes uh-huh. ten to fifteen minutes. Um, this is uh, about one hundred and eighty minutes of wow. <laughs> of uh, of me- cool. media that I'm um, writing, I'm producing and hosting, and it's. Um, it's gonna. It's pretty exciting, yeah. and I wish I could share more details, but.
1: Um, well, this is a good breadcrumb. We'll have to update the listener later, and, and this incentivizes them to pay yeah,
0: attention. Yeah, yeah. And did I hear yesterday you're working,
1: Are you working on a book too?
0: Oh goodness! I mean, you know.
1: Is that even fair? Like, that's a bad question to ask. Sometimes I get. But.
0: Yeah, I mean, there are there have been. I I am represented by a literary agent who I'm sure would be delighted to know that if I was working <laughs> on a book, but, you know, the the reality is I, I um. I've just worked so hard uh for the last, you know, 6 years creating educational videos and we're a really small production team. So for, Yeah, how big
1: is it? Like how, how do you pull it off?
0: Um right now I it's myself and we have one uh videographer and editor and we have uh, a production assistant for the first time. Okay. So um uh we have a, an employee who is helping me with managing filming schedules and helping to come up with contents and episode outlines. Um, Last year we had about a person and a half uh, uh, beside myself. So we're a really small team. That's lean. Yeah, Yeah. it's lean from a production standpoint, even if you don't have to work or aren't working in a a museum. Right. So I've been uh, been busy.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Well, you're busy during your time here in Missoula, so I want to be respectful of that. It's been great to learn more about your work. And we're just so jazzed that you're here to be celebrated with this Odyssey of the Stars uh, event tomorrow night. That's yeah, it's an honor. And thanks for stopping by and sharing some of your story, Emily.
0: Yeah, thanks for having me.
1: Okay, I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Emily as much as I did. What an inspiration. Check out her social feeds. Check out the Brain Scoop. It's just awesome stuff. Okay, speaking of inspiration, next week we have University of Montana head football coach Bobby Houck. Spring football is in full swing, and we're excited to get an update from the coach. Stay tuned for next week. Thanks for listening to New Angle. We really appreciate it. And we're coming to you from Studio 49, part of the Michelle and Lauren Hansen Media Lab at the University of Montana College of Business. Remember that this podcast was supported by CED, Consolidated Electrical Distributors. These guys pretty much sell anything electrical you'd ever need, but they also hire a ton of our students. If you want to learn more about jobs at CED, visit cedcareers.com. Before we go, I want to thank some important peeps. Executive producer, Stefan Borsom. Producer, Aidan Morton. And interns, Aspen Runkle, Max Gibson, and Ellie Hanasek. Huge thanks to VTO, Jeff Ament and John Wicks for the tunes. And finally, props to Jeff Meese, our master of all things sound. Finally... If you have any questions, suggestions, comments, insults, whatever, please email me at anewangle at umontana.edu. Help us spread the word and be sure to use the hashtag anewangle when you do. Thanks a lot. See you next time.